So let's open up today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start with a story. This is from John Lennox, who is the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University. He's a Christian, and he told this story about when he first came to Oxford, and I believe this was for his graduate study, uh, but he was speaking to a professor, a distinguished academic, and he was asking him, as a scientist, how has that affected your view on the world? How do you view God? How do you view morality? And he noticed that this guy got a little uncomfortable when he started asking him about that. And I'm going to quote from his latest book. This is the story he tells. That professor invited me to come to his study. He had also invited two or three other senior academics, but no other students. I was invited to sit, and so far as I recall, they remained standing. He said, Lennox, do you want a career in science? Yes, sir, I replied. Then, he said, in front of witnesses tonight, you must give up this childish faith in God. If you do not, then it will cripple you intellectually and you will suffer by comparison with your peers. You simply will not make it. That's a pretty intimidating situation, isn't it? You show up for school to Oxford University. Some distinguished academic takes you back to his office with a couple other academic goons, you know, standing there as security, I guess, and they demand, right now you need to give up your belief in God. It's like medieval stuff. You've got to recant your belief and thank the Lord that he endured, and he's still a Christian and he's still a believer to this day, and he's the emeritus professor of mathematics at Oxford, so it didn't really hinder his scientific career very much, did it? But today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at spiritual intimidation, we're going to look at the first time the church faced persecution. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is the first time they faced persecution. And it was not violent, it was not abusive, but it was an attempt to intimidate the church. It's in scripture, but it has also been my experience that when a church or an individual Christian begins to enter into the deeper life of the Spirit, when you start to take a couple steps closer to God, when you start to really get things right, when you're like, you know what, we've been dealing this with for years, it's time to be done. That's when the devil rears his head and starts to roar. He starts to make noise. He tries to intimidate you. I shared this story on Wednesday, and I've shared it before, but my old professor, Dave Early, announced on one Sunday morning to his church, he said, this coming week, we're going to start a Bible study on spiritual warfare and prayer. The next morning, he woke up with 22 huge boils all over his body. He goes to the doctor, and the doctor said, I've never seen anything like this. This is not what happens. Boils take a long time, and they don't all pop up like that. And his uh, doctor was a Christian and said, what are you teaching on these days? And he said, well, I'm about to teach on spiritual warfare and prayer. And he goes, okay, well, that might be our answer then. And they prayed and fasted all that week, and he ended up not needing to have treatment, and the Lord healed him. And it's a great story of, of victory and overcoming and how the enemy is already defeated, which we're going to talk about. But what I want to point out is that intimidation. We're going to start talking about how we can overcome the works of the devil. And the devil tried to intimidate him and scare him and spook him by striking him with boils. But this is what the enemy does. This is what the devil does. The Lord has given us amazing promises of peace and joy and victory. But the devil is a master at striking fear into our hearts. Because the devil cannot stop what God is doing. But if he can convince you that none of it's real or that if you step out, it's not going to be worth it. And you don't step out in faith in what God has called you to. You can be prevented from advancing to victory. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Peter wrote, Cast all your anxieties on him, 
because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter says, give your anxieties to the Lord. He wants to take them from you. He wants to look after your soul and your mental state. But you got to watch out because the Lord cares for you, but the devil's out to get you, and he's roaring like a lion. And we believe in a personal devil. We don't just believe that, oh, bad things happen and people tend to degenerate. No, there is a personal enemy that hates you. And we believe that he has an army at his behest. We also believe that there are people who can unwittingly, and I don't think that is always inspired by Satan, but there are people who unwittingly become the mouthpiece of what the opposite is of what the Lord wants us to do. And they say things like, isn't that a little much? Aren't you going a little overboard? Isn't it time you just came to your senses? And we believe in all that. But you know what? More than that, we believe in a powerful God. We believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has already won the battle. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. And I believe that just as this last week, God was stirring us up to pray for the sick and the hurting. He wants us to be also seeking him to bring emotional and spiritual deliverance to this congregation as well. You know, this is the this, this is a time in our nation's history where the suicide rate is the same as it was during the Great Depression. We talk about this is the greatest economy America's ever seen, but we are killing ourselves at the same rate as we were during the worst economy this nation had ever seen. Anxiety, stress, depression, fear, panic attacks, all these things are being reported at the highest levels since we started tracking them. There are people that are subject to fear and they don't have to be, right? When we talk about physical healing, I'm going to come in and I'm always going to say, look, does God always intend for us to be healed? No, but the Lord never intends for us to walk in fear. The Lord never intends. You know why? Because he told us over and over again, do not be afraid. The first time anybody had encounter with the Lord or an angel was the first thing out of their mouth. Fear not, right? The angels came to the shepherds in the field and they were sore afraid. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. The Lord does not desire for us to live in fear or panic. The only fear we have is the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord leads to the love of the Lord. So let's look at what happened here, and the disciples are going to give us an awesome example of how to overcome this intimidation. Let's read the first four verses, picking up from the story of last week. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So last week, we saw Peter and John come to the temple for the hour of prayer. They raised the lame man up. The Lord healed him. They went into the temple, leaping, rejoicing, praising God. And then Peter begins to preach to the curious crowd and saying, it is not our power. It's not through our name, but it's through the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And then he laid the gospel on the line and people started listening. And as you see here in verse four, thousands more were saved. The ESV gives a very good translation by saying the number of the men came to about 5,000 because the Greek is unclear whether that means 5,000 more people were saved that day or the 3,000 from before grew until it was about 5,000. Either way, it's a lot of people <laughs> getting saved. 
And this part here says 5,000 men. That should be 5,000 families. So it's more than just 5,000. It's probably closer to 10 or 15,000 at this point. It's the first megachurch, you could say, was meeting in the temple. But as they're preaching, and this amazing moment is happening, they are arrested by the rulers of the temple, led especially by the Sadducees. Remember when we went through Luke, Jesus had all kinds of conflicts with the Pharisees, but it was when he finally messed with the Sadducees that they arrested him. The Sadducees was the ruling party in Jerusalem. This was a, it was, they, they were mostly focused on political power. They were focused on the nation of Israel. It was almost very close to a secular government. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in most of the Old Testament. They held to the first five books, but they didn't believe in any of the supernatural stuff that happened there. But most of all, their defining characteristic was they stood against the resurrection. Not Jesus' resurrection specifically, but any doctrine of resurrection. The Pharisees believed that one day we we're going to rise from the dead and we we're going to live in the kingdom of God. And the Sadducees didn't believe that. You remember in Luke chapter 20 when they came to Jesus and they asked him about the woman who had had seven husbands. Whose wife will she be in the kingdom? And Jesus says, but that the dead are raised... And he gives an explanation. He knew that the, the problem that they had was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. So they find out that these guys are here preaching in the temple. And they're not just preaching the resurrection. They're preaching a specific resurrection that had just happened. And they said, this is possible because Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's what made them angry more than the fact that the lame man had been healed. And so they arrest them. And it doesn't say specifically, but it seems pretty clear that the lame man was arrested too. How do you like that? Day one, you get to walk, you get to go to temple for the first time, you've, you've found the truth of the Messiah, and now you're arrested. I wonder if they were held in separate cells or if they were together. If they were together, I wonder what that conversation was like. If they were separate, I wonder what that was like, sitting there by themselves. And I'm sure they wondered, like, Lord... We just healed a man who couldn't walk. Why are they punishing us? Wondering how their fortunes had shifted from earlier that day where they were having this amazing victory, thousands coming to the Lord, and now they're in prison. This is how the devil works. Spiritual intimidation. They had not only liberated this man from being lame his whole life, they had plundered the kingdom of darkness from thousands of souls the day before, and the devil is not going to put up with it anymore. So he fires a shot across the bow. You know, that's a nautical term. That was when a pirate or a privateer would come and try to take another ship. You would fire a shot, but you would shoot it across the bow, which is the front of the ship, to let them know, we mean business. The next one's going to hit you dead center. And he's warning them, if you keep on this way, I'm going to push back. Very similar to what we see in 1 Kings 19. There are so many examples of this in Scripture. In 1 Kings 19, Ahab had just been defeated by Elijah. They had brought all the prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel. The Lord sent fire from heaven and all the people rose up and declared that the Lord was God. They killed the 400 false prophets of Baal. Then Elijah prays and prays and finally the Lord sends rain again. Ahab has to go home to Jezebel with his tail between his legs and tells her in 1 Kings 19, 1-3, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, you were right, I was wrong. No. She said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. 
said, you killed my prophets, I'm going to kill you too. So help me, my false gods. And Elijah should have said, what false gods? The ones that couldn't call down fire yesterday? What am I worried about what you have to say? But no, what does it say? He was afraid and arose and ran for his life. And he goes into the desert. And actually, as the story continues, the first thing God says to him when he runs away to Mount Sinai, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why aren't you back there? This is intimidation. Jezebel had no power over Elijah. It had been three years they hadn't been able to take him. Later in his life, when they come to arrest Elijah, God's going to send fire down from heaven and consume the soldiers. But Jezebel sent an intimidating message to him. It was fear that drove him to do this. If you've seen the newer Sherlock Holmes movies, there's a moment where Sherlock Holmes is with his, his adversary Moriarty and they're having that combative conversation and he, he brings up a threat and says, if you keep going this way, I'm going to bring it to your friends and it's going to end badly for you. And he says this line, he says, now, are you sure you want to play this game? He's kind of saying, I'm ready to escalate this to a level that you're not prepared for. And that, I think that's such a clear picture of what it's like when we start to experience the victory in Jesus. The devil shows up and tries to intimidate us. We're thrown into prison. He sends that threatening message. And it's like he's saying, are you sure you want to play this game? Because I've been playing it for thousands of years and I'm ready for you. That's spiritual intimidation. That's what the devil does. And the goal of spiritual intimidation is two things. Number one, cowardice leading to conformity. The devil wants to make you afraid so that you will start capitulating to his plans and his view of the world, so that you will start living as if he is God rather than God being God. So this first thing, fear. He desires to strike fear into your heart. How does he do this? He'll plant a thought in your mind. That's something we can talk about more later, but don't own every thought that comes into your mind. Because the devil will whisper to you and he'll plant things in your, your brain. You ever think something and you go, why in the world am I thinking that? What's wrong with me? Something that's just really gross sin or, or something incredibly violent or something that goes against everything that you believe and you think, why am I thinking that? You have an enemy that's whispering in your ear and is tempting you with these things. He'll put a thought in your heart. And I say the most common thought the devil puts in our heart to strike fear into our hearts is to say, you've committed the unforgivable sin. It's amazing how many Christians believe that they have or might have done that. Christians who have been saved and baptized and come to church and worship and pray and are raising their children to follow Jesus, somehow they think, I've blown it. I can never be saved. He plants a thought in your heart. Or he orchestrates an event similar to this where they were arrested. You're following Jesus and everything seems to be going well and all of a sudden your tax rates get adjusted and you get your, a letter from the bank saying that your mortgage payment is going to be an extra $2,000 this year. Or he provokes a person to speak or act like Jezebel speaking to Elijah and say something that just brings you down. You're like, Lord, you're finally bringing joy in my heart and you show up to your work and your boss calls you in and just chews you out. Sometimes the devil can even touch your body like that story I shared earlier. It is very common, especially for missionaries and pastors in their first years of ministry to suffer from terrible nightmares and unexplained illnesses. There was a conference that my friend spoke at and he was talking about this and it was for missionaries and church planners. And he said, how many of you, since you started planning this church or have been in the mission field, have had such terrible nightmares that you're afraid to go to sleep? And Almost everyone raised their hand and these grown men started to weep because they were being attacked by the enemy and intimidated from doing what the Lord had called them to do. 
Some of that can just be coincidence. Yes, you're right. It can just be coincidence. I'm not going to say everything that bad that happens is from the devil. Okay. But some of it is. How do you know? Because when something like this happens, it's accompanied by a thought that comes in your mind that blames God for it. Say, if I hadn't been reading my Bible so much, this wouldn't have happened. Every time I try to get close to God, my life falls to pieces. Every time I go to church, everything falls apart. When bad things happen, you don't normally do that. You don't normally say, this is all Jesus' fault. But when the enemy throws something in your face, that's what he wants to get you to do. You can, you can tell. And that's not how you normally think, but that's the temptation. It tries to connect the pain or the fear to Jesus. It's like in Nehemiah chapter 6. They're building the wall. And Tobiah and Sanballat are opposing this work. And they're sending letters to Nehemiah. And they're threatening him. And they're saying, we're going to come and attack you. And we're going to tattle on you to the emperor, which is what they did. And there was even a false prophet that they paid off. His name was Shemaiah. And he said, Nehemiah, the Lord has told me that they're coming for you tonight. We've got to go into the holy place and hide there. But it says in Nehemiah chapter 6, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. They were trying to keep him from doing what God had called him to do by prophesying to him for a few bucks that they're coming to kill you. We have to hide in the holy place. He said, to make me afraid and to make me sin starts with fear, to make you afraid so that you start living as if Satan's in control and not the Lord. That's that second step, pressure to conform. For the apostles, this pressure was just shut up. You don't have to preach so loud. You don't need to draw so much attention to yourself. Why do you have to meet in the temple? Why don't you just go meet out in the wilderness like Jesus did? Why do you got to be healing people in broad daylight? Why don't you call them over into the shadows and heal them there? And why do you need to heal people at all? Isn't the gospel just about faith? You don't need to be doing all this kind of stuff. That's what the enemy pressures us to do. There is a level of Christianity that Satan is willing to tolerate in your life because it's non-threatening. It's comfortable. It's always anti-supernatural. You ever have a thought that comes into your brain, man, it would be so much easier if I just believed that God didn't work in our lives anymore. You ever have that thought? Like, it would be so much easier. I wouldn't have to pray as much. I wouldn't have to believe this. I wouldn't be risking disappointment. Well, that's not from the Lord. Come on. <laughs> God's not teaching you that. I forget who first called it this, but there's a, a Christian pastor who compares American Christianity to moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's very moral, teaches me to be a good person. Therapeutic, makes me feel better. And it's deistic. God's there, but you know, he's out there. He's not right here. He's out there. The devil's fine with that because it's non-threatening. He didn't want to stamp out the church. He just wanted him to shut up. You can heal whoever you want. Just don't preach about it. Don't bring it into the temple. For you, it could be the enemy trying to keep you from attending church or from changing a relationship that's just become toxic and damaging to you. From removing a sin in your life, it's the crabs in the bucket thing. You've heard that analogy, right? That when crabs try to crawl out of a bucket, you don't need to put a lid on it because the other crabs will just pull them right back down because they'll try and climb over each other. Well, in this case, there's a big giant crab and his name is Satan and he'll grab you and yank you down. It's pressure to be just like everyone else. And that's how you know when it's spiritual warfare. Because there's no resistance when you try to sin more. Have you noticed that? 
The enemy will give you a free pass if you want to start sinning more. Oh, go right ahead. Oh, fine. You want to you want to yell at people more often? You want to watch that? You want to engage in that activity? Be my guest. There's no resistance. But the minute you start trying to fast, all of a sudden it's the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life. You're like, I skip meals all the time. Why am I so hungry today? I was just supposed to skip one meal and I can't hardly do it because the enemy pushes back against righteousness. He doesn't push back against sin. It's pressure to become just like everybody else, to live like somebody who doesn't believe in God. Ivan Moseyev was a Soviet soldier in the Red Army. And he was a good Russian. He believed in Mother Russia. He believed in the communist plan. But he would not be an atheist. I believe in God and you're never going to convince me otherwise. So his sergeant called him in and said, in order to complete your re-education, you have to stand outside in the snow during winter in your summer uniform until you are willing to give up your belief in God. And it's a great story because an angel sustained him and he was able to stand out there for weeks and weeks at a time and all these people started getting saved. But that's pressure. You're going to go stand in the snow until you're just like us. That's what the enemy does. He's cunning. He'll convince you of a thousand reasons why you ought to just back off. And he's not afraid to send his goons to lean on you if you step out of line. And you should expect that. You should expect that, all right, the Lord is finally starting to salvage my soul. And I'm starting to get over these things that I've struggled with for years. Get ready for the punch. Doesn't mean it has to knock you down, but get ready for the punch. Verse 5, so they're in prison. Thousands saved. The next morning... On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? That translation could almost be, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? intimidation. They're brought before what was called the Sanhedrin. This was a council of 70 men plus the high priest, so that would have been 71 men, who was the ruling and governing body in Israel. These are the same people that had condemned Jesus to die. And Annas was there. We've talked about him. Annas was no longer high priest because he had bought the, the job of high priest from Rome, and then he had executed so many people that Rome kicked him out. But then he bought it for his son, and then his next son, and then his son-in-law. He ended up buying the office of high priest for five of his sons and one of his sons-in-law, and if I'm not mistaken, even a grandson as well. And they ran Jerusalem. They made all their money from the money changing in the temple, from selling all the animals, all the things that Jesus drove them out for. You can see why he got their attention. And it's really funny because it calls them the high priestly family. You could almost get that a capital F, like the Gotti family. It's like a mafia family of priests. And they've dragged them before them. And they figure, well, they've been cooled overnight. They're ready to talk. Because they remember that the last time John and Peter encountered these men, they were afraid. John and Peter were the two that followed Jesus. And John's father Zebedee was a man of some means. He had some influence. They knew who John was. So John was able to get him and Peter into the, the high priest's house while Jesus was on trial. But John didn't say a word. And Peter ended up denying Jesus three times. And the devil knows this. It's like, these guys are cowards. They, they thought it was intimidating to be outside the circle. I'm going to bring them in the circle now and we'll see how they like it. 
This is what happens. Charles Spurgeon said that you should expect spiritual assault before and after your greatest moments of victory. Because the devil attacks you when you're weak. Because he wants to warn you against trying that again. He's like, okay, that was fine. You had a great prayer time. The Lord healed you. Don't you try that again. When you step out, you draw attention to yourself and the devil pulls up your file. <laughs> Where is he vulnerable? Where have we gotten her in the past? Let's double down on that. And we're going to look at four, four strongholds here that can be places that give the devil a handle on your life. The devil has no authority over you. You get that? devil has no power, but you can open yourself up to being manipulated if you do not eliminate these things. So let's look at this. For the apostles, it was fear. They knew that they were cowards. They were scaredy cats. So let's get the, the intimidating counsel and demand of an explanation of them. For us, it can be number one, there can be sins of unbelief. First thing that gives the devil a handle in your life is when you have allowed yourself to believe lies. Our strength in the Lord comes through faith, right? When we believe the Lord, we start acting as if Jesus is Lord. But if the devil can convince you of something else, you're going to start acting in accordance with that. It's like if, <laughs> it's like if you showed up, I don't know, at, at a restaurant and you sit down to eat and the manager comes out and says, would you get back in the kitchen? Those dishes are piling up. He has no authority over you. But if you get up and you start washing dishes, it's as if he does have authority over you. This is why we cannot harbor and cultivate doubts in our lives. And I'll give a good example for each one of these. The most common sin of unbelief that will give the devil a handle over your life is if you believe at some level that you have to earn your salvation. That your salvation is based on your performance. Most days, you can believe that and it's not really going to affect you. But when the enemy comes and starts to apply the pressure, if that's a weak point for you, he's going to start to throw your sins in your face. It's almost as if Peter knows that he's a coward and the Lord's given him strength, but now Satan starts making all the roosters to start to crow around him to remind him of that time he was afraid and denied Jesus. That's what the devil will do. He'll throw it in your face. What about this? What about this thing you did? What about that time you said this? What about that thing you were imagining the other day? If you believe that your sin can cause you to be separated from God, then the devil's going to magnify your sin in your life. So we can't believe that. We've got to believe instead that our salvation comes by grace through faith. Belief is the antidote to that. The second one, sins of omission. This is if you have failed to get ready. If you have failed to prep yourself like Jesus taught you, there will be a weak point in the wall where Satan will attack. Have you ever been to the auto mechanic after something broke in your car? And he says, if you had brought this in every six months like you were supposed to, this wouldn't have happened. When I had my first car, I remember I was friends with my mechanic. He went to the church and uh, he fixed the thing and he says, all right, lecture time. <laughs> and I remember it was Rob Minix. He's a great guy. And he explained, you had not had this checked or had this checked. You hadn't filled up this fluid. And that's why you're owing me $900 today. <laughs> Next time, if you keep the maintenance up, this isn't going to blow up again. Right? If you keep air in your tires, they're not going to blow out. If you keep your oil changed, your engine's not going to blow up. And there are sins of omission in your life. If you're not doing maintenance on your soul, then you're going to be vulnerable when the attack comes. I think the biggest example here is unforgiveness. Jesus has told us to forgive each other like he forgave us. And if you have unforgiveness in your heart, that's where Satan will keep the battle. 
Why would he go around to where you're strong? Like, I have such good control over my temper. Well, then that's not where Satan's going to tempt you. He knows better than that. He knows that you have a heart of unforgiveness. And so he's going to stir up bitterness within you. And when you say, Lord, I want you to do something new in my life. He says, okay, I need you to forgive her. Forgive him. I can't do that, Lord. Let's move on to something else. No, this is the problem. We've got to fix this. You can't show up to your mechanic and say, I just want you to give the car a tune-up. Okay, well, it looks like you need an oil change. Ah, I don't believe in oil changes. You need one. That's what it needs. Well, why are you always talking about that? Because that's the problem you always have. We have to forgive as we have been forgiven. Third, sins of commission. These are things that you are actively doing or sins that you are indulging in that maybe they make no noise day by day. You commit these sins and it's not a big deal and you get away with it and you don't feel bad about it, but the devil comes and all of a sudden he inflames it in your heart. If you've allowed yourself to be consumed by lust or pornography or a similar sin like that, day by day it might be, okay, this isn't really affecting my life, but the minute you start to take a step following after Jesus, boom, it becomes the biggest issue in your heart and you're too afraid to pray, and you're too afraid to step out, and it can force you to your knees. And it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything. Any sin that you're actively committing draws you farther away from Jesus. And fourth, there are sins of attitude. These are more subtle, but they, they're like rot. They rot the soul from the inside. If you've got an attitude problem in some way, and it doesn't really seem to affect anything. It's like you've got a fence and the boards are getting weak, and the wood is starting to rot, and the nails are all rusty and falling out, it, it can look just fine until somebody comes and throws their shoulder against it, and then your fence falls over. How did this happen? It's not how did this happen. You've been allowing it to rot. Sins of attitude. The devil decides to inflame that infection. Pride is the biggest example. It's a killer. If you're constantly obsessed with yourself, you and your rights and what you want and what you need, then the enemy will leverage that attitude against you to keep you from going deeper with Christ. Sins of unbelief, omission, commission, and attitude. Ephesians 4.27 says, Give no opportunity to the devil. Like I said, he has no authority over you, but if you start jumping when he says jump, then it's as if he did have authority over you. The good news is that you do not have to continue in this. But if you've got a beachhead in your soul, that's where the assault's going to come. If that's where the wall is weak, that's where the enemy is going to attack. And all of a sudden, you shrink down and you can get stuck there for years if you're not careful. And this is what they were banking on. These guys, they're intimidated. They're easily made afraid. So we're going to make them afraid. But they did not realize that something was different from the last time. And that was that the Lord had filled them with his Holy Spirit and Jesus had risen from the dead. So this time... Peter, who was cussing people out, saying he didn't believe in Jesus last time. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 12 is worth underlining and memorizing. Peter answers, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago that we believe that at salvation, the Holy Spirit seals you for salvation, but the Holy Spirit can repeatedly come upon you and fill you for acts of service in the moment. And this is confirmed by what we see in verse 8. He says, filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek here, this is the word place face. It's an aorist passive. It refers to something that happened at that moment. It's not descriptive of the state. Like Peter, who was filled with the Spirit all the time, that would be a different word. That would be an adjective, play race. This is saying, and in that moment, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he said, and Jesus had told them, remember in Luke 21, he had said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And he gives glory to Jesus Christ. He says, really, I'm on trial for healing a lame man and you're worried about how I did it? I'm on trial for this? Fine, I'll tell you. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Testifying to the resurrection. You see, this is the third speech we've seen from Peter. And all three times he has called the Jews out for crucifying Jesus, but said, but God exalted him by raising him from the dead. And in this passage, he quotes from Psalm 118, when he says, he is the stone that was rejected by the builders and has become the cornerstone. Saying, you looked at Jesus trying to build your nation and said, we don't need him. Get him out of here. But that was the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the key piece in this building. We're going to talk in a few weeks here about the, uh, the Jews and how they related to the Lord. But do you notice, first of all, in these first chapters, how it is centered on the nation of Israel? This is going to become key later on because they're bringing it back. You are God's chosen people and you've rejected your Messiah. And Peter, in verse 12, gives us one of the clearest verses in the Bible about the exclusivity of the gospel. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Paul would say it this way in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You cannot be saved through anyone else. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Krishna, they can't save you. Only Jesus can. And we are never, ever going to compromise on that here. And I'll say too, just as a side note, when people say, it doesn't matter what God you believe in, it's all the same, usually that comes from, they don't believe in anything. <laughs> they believe religion exists to make you happy and make you a good person. So if you can believe in the flying spaghetti monster and it makes you a better person, then who cares what you believe in? But we believe in the reality of these things. That we have an actual soul that is actually going to be weighed in the judgment someday. Which is why Jesus is the only one who can save us. Because he's the only one that has paid the price and offers it freely. There's no other power or name that can save us. And Peter is saying there's no other power or name that could have made this lame man walk. And in your life there is no other power or name that can help you overcome the intimidation of the Spirit. When the enemy comes after you, we make a mistake when we start to turn to other things to save us. When we turn to therapy, when we turn to medicine, when we turn to the occult, when we turn to distracting things. Am I opposed to medicine? Of course not. But there are some cases where the battle is not physical, it is spiritual. And when you engage it on a physical level, you're making a mistake. And this is something that I have experienced, especially when I was going through youth ministry, and I feel very strongly about this, so if I speak strongly, this, uh, this is why. I saw so many 
teenagers, kids, put on medicine to change them instead of helping them work through what was going on in their life. And we have a tendency to do that. Are there some times when we need medical help? Yes, absolutely. I will never deny that. But I saw so many cases where a kid was dealing with something and instead of bringing them to Jesus and letting the Lord heal them or helping them work through something, we just gave them a pill. Sometimes that is not the answer. We have a God who delivers us from these things. People can even turn to the occult in cases like this. You can start to say, well, what other religions have to offer? You know, people who say, yeah, I, I believe the Bible, but you know, there's those, old, there's those old voodoo recipes that really can help you, and you can get into uh, praying to this demon or this god, and you can work this spell, and if you, uh, you, know, you drink this thing, it'll help you, and it, it becomes magic plus Jesus. That's no good. Jesus has all authority at God's right hand. And you know, there were physicians in the Bible. Luke was a physician. <laughs> Luke was a doctor. But there is a story in the Old Testament where Asa went to the physicians and it was wrong for him to do that because it was a spiritual battle where he should have gone to the Lord first. So there are times, and this, I didn't even intend to talk about this, there are times where you need to come to Jesus rather than something else. You might say, well, what do we do? When, I, when I'm dealing with the spiritual intimidation, when I'm dealing with fear, depression, anxiety, what do I do? James tells us in James chapter 4, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You have to first, number one, draw near to God. This is how you overcome spiritual intimidation. Draw near to God. And we can say, well, how do I do that? First of all, don't worry about how. The Bible says, if you seek the Lord, you will find him. Do it how you best know how. The Lord is ready to meet with you. But I can give you some things how. Read your Bible. Guys, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but so many Christians don't read their Bibles. They don't know what the Word says. So when the enemy comes and whispers a lie, you don't know the truth. And you've swallowed and believed something that God never promised or that God did promise, but you would believe that He didn't. You've got to know the Word. You've got to pray. You've got to fast. You've got to worship him in song. You've got to engage in intentional fellowship. That means when you get together with Christians, you're not just talking about the same things you talk about everywhere else. You're talking about Jesus. Getting around people who know God better than you and say, show me how to know God better. All the things that we saw back in Acts chapter 2. The disciples were ready to face these Pharisees and Sadducees because they had been with Jesus. We're going to read that in a second. They had been in these spiritual disciplines. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. Second, resist the devil. And James adds, and he will flee from you. This is negative action. Positive action is fill your life with all the right things. Negative action, get rid of all the bad stuff. And can I just say this? Stop sinning. I can never stop sinning. Look, you're never going to be free from the temptation and presence of sin. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 6. You are not a slave to sin. That's why he says, don't present your body as an instrument of unrighteousness. Don't show up for duty for sin. He says, you show up to the Lord and let the Lord fight for you. Stop sinning. <laughs> Remove filth from your life. If you've got stuff in your life that you know is not good for your soul... I don't care if the Bible says you shouldn't do it or not. Evaluate if it's good for your soul or not. And then get rid of it. You might have friendships in your life. There might be people around you that just bring you down. Break off those friendships. 
Well, they need Jesus. Okay, yes, they need Jesus, but if they're drawing you away from the Lord, who's influencing whom? If there's a script in your life, if you just know that when this happens or when I go here or when we start talking about this or I say that, I know where it ends. I know that if I, we start having this conversation, we're going to fight. I know if I start going over here and I go see that guy, I know what we're going to do. If you know the script, stop initiating the script. If you catch yourself in the middle of it, stop. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because the enemy can't overpower you. He can't grab you by the throat and say, listen, you're going to do as I say. He can't. He can intimidate you. He can bully you. He can deceive you. But if you stop believing the lie and fight back, the Bible promises that he will run away like any other bully. In Isaiah chapter 36, the Assyrian general shows up and they're going to offer their demands to the city of Jerusalem. And the leaders in Jerusalem say, let's talk in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Because if you speak in Hebrew, the people in the city will hear it and they'll get intimidated. And the guy says, I'm going to speak in Hebrew because I want them to know what's going to happen. And he lays out the horrible consequences of the siege that is coming. And the king and the people take the demands, lay them out before the Lord in the temple, tear their clothes, fast and pray. God, we can't do this. We're just going to lay it out before you. God, you handle it. And the Lord sent an angel to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to deliver them. And it's actually kind of funny because when the army is forced to withdraw, the general sends a letter to them and says, don't think this means God did anything for you. It's like, we know what happened. It's intimidation. You have God in your corner. Stop trying to fight for yourself. I can overcome this. I can fight it. Why try? You've got the Lord on your side. Take the fight into the spiritual realm. The devil wants to keep it mental. He wants to keep it physical. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers. Well, if we start engaging in the spiritual, that's intimidating. No, it's not, because the Bible says you have weapons that are not carnal, but powerful in the spirit to tear down strongholds. Take the fight into the spiritual realm. Get the Lord involved. The same Lord that cast him out of heaven like lightning. <laughs> Devil likes to make us think he's so scary. But it's like, I've got God on my team. You don't intimidate me. And the third step is to step out in faith. You've got to keep going. Draw near to God, resist the devil, and step out in faith. You can't allow yourself to be intimidated. The apostles stood here boldly, not apologetic, not afraid. They're not like, look, here's what happened. Let's work out a deal. Maybe we can have the temple on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you guys have it the rest of the week. Or I promise not to preach about the resurrection. I'll preach about this other stuff. But he wasn't doing that. He says, fine, if you want to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, let's go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. If you experience resistance when you try to serve the Lord, it means you're doing something right. Because remember, the devil doesn't resist sin. <laughs> the devil's not going to try to stop you from yelling at your kids and provoking them to anger. The devil's not going to try to stop you from embezzling money from your company. Right? The devil's going to try to stop you from praying. He's going to try to stop you from evangelizing. He's going to try to stop you from loving people when you don't want to. i got to read this story. I had to cut this, this quote in half because it was just way too long. But this is from George Whitfield, who was an evangelist in the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And he went to preach at the Moorfields in London when there was a carnival going on. He, did, he would set up his little pulpit. If you go to the Museum of the Bible in um, 
Washington, D.C. They have a replica of the pulpit he used to preach in. It was about this tall, about this big around, and he used to stand in it and preach in the open air. Well, this is what happened when he used to preach. He said, you may easily guess, as he's at this carnival preaching, that there was some noise among the craftsmen, and that I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. At length they approached nearer, and a jester got on a man's shoulders, and advancing near the pulpit, attempted to slash me with a long, heavy whip several times. The next day, he went back. <laughs> the next day I preached in great jeopardy, for the pulpit being high and the supports not well fixed in the ground, it tottered every time I moved, and numbers of the enemies strove to push my friends against the supporters in order to throw me down. Satan did not like thus to be attacked in his strongholds, and I narrowly escaped with my life. For as I was passing from the pulpit to the coach, I felt my wig and hat to be almost off. I turned about and observed a sword just touching my temples. Is that intimidating? <laughs> it's nice in here. It's quiet. Y'all are being respectful. You're listening. But listen, even if we were to go out in public and start preaching, do you think they're going to start throwing dead cats at me? Or trying to get somebody to whip me while I'm preaching up there? And there's other parts of the story that I didn't even talk about. And some guy tried to chop his head off. He kept going. He didn't stop. He trusted that God was going to take care of him. And God did. The Salvation Army, back in the days of William Booth, when they were preaching in London, we think back, oh, those were the days of revival. Yeah, but you know what? They used to have to wear two coats. I love this story. They would wear one coat for the street and keep one for the meeting because they would walk through the streets and people would see they were with the Salvation Army and they would throw rotten fruit at them. They'd throw eggs at them. They'd kick mud at them. They'd push them down. They'd empty the chamber pots out of the windows down onto the Salvation Army as they walked by. So they had the coat for the street, and then when you got inside, you took off the coat, and you put on the clean one so that you could have church without everybody smelling real bad. They kept going, despite intimidation. You know, we talk all we want about the good old days. Oh, I wish I could be alive when George Whitfield was preaching. But it took great courage to live in those days, because the enemy's intimidation machine was on full blast. He would go and preach, and people were trying to chop him into pieces. If you want to see the Lord's victory in your life, you've got to be willing to weather the storms. But the good news is that you can, because if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Does that mean that the intimidation is going to stop? No, it'll probably get worse. But hopefully over time you learn, uh, I don't need to be afraid of you. <laughs> God's on my team. He's going to take good care of me. Intimidation can be painful. It can even be physical. But the Lord will fill you with his spirit if you will keep going. And this is great because the Sanhedrin thought they were hot stuff. And they drag Peter and John in front of them and, well, what do you have to say for yourselves? And then Peter says, I have to say that there is no salvation in anybody else except Jesus Christ. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Isn't that amazing? They wished they could deny it, even though something miraculous had happened. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. The Sanhedrin was stunned because they had expected this trick to work. It had worked last time. They had dragged them in and they ran away. But they couldn't deny the healing and Peter was not backing down. So what do we do now? We can't let them keep preaching in Jesus' name. And you know, that is the problem that we face, is that the world has its agenda, the world has its plan, the world has its values, and they can talk all they want about following the evidence where it leads, but these guys had the evidence right in front of them, and they didn't say, maybe we were wrong about Jesus. They said, oh great, now people are going to think Jesus was the Messiah, because look at this healed, healed lame man. And that's what happens, y'all. That's why whenever you encounter something miraculous, like we talked about this morning, it never feels like it did in the stories. Because the enemy is working full time to throw a wet blanket on your enthusiasm to keep you from moving forward in joy. And the enemy wants to force conformity. And when the world faces a bold Christian, they're shocked. They're shocked because we do not need or want their approval. We don't play by the same rules they do, and so they don't know how to play. How do we play this game? These guys, what are we supposed to do with these guys? They're not playing the game like it's supposed to be played. It can lead to confusion and it can even lead to anger. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down and worship the idol? They were very respectful, but they said, King, we're not doing it. And they said he was so angry, they heated up the furnace seven times and threw them in. But what happened? The Lord was with them in the furnace. And the king switched his mind and says, all right, from now on, we're not worshiping the gold statue. If anybody doesn't worship their God, we're going to rip your house down. He was learning. He was, he was trying to come along, right? Here's the thing. The enemies of God are toothless. They have already lost. Why Jesus would say, don't fear those who can kill the body. Paul would say, to die is gain. We're going to kill you. Oh, great. Then I get to go to heaven. Awesome. If you're going to kill me, that means that I've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. But you guys, we're not really in danger of being killed for our faith, are we? But there's plenty of intimidation to go around. Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The enemy has already been defeated. Isn't that awesome? He comes in and he goes, ooga, booga, ooga, booga. Like, that's cute. Does that work with everybody? It's not going to work here. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to read this story. This is from the life of St. Anthony, way back in church history. And it's telling a story of how he, was, he, was, he would go to the tombs to pray because it was the only place he could be alone before he went out into the desert. And it, it, the story is that all these demons began to manifest in front of him and they were taking the forms of bulls and wolves and snakes and lions and they were roaring and they were in his face and like every creepy nightmare you've ever had was happening to him. But Anthony, in mockery, said, If there had been any power in you, demons, it would have been enough for one of you to come. But since the Lord has made you weak, you attempt to terrify me by numbers. And a proof of your weakness is that you take the shapes of brute beasts. And again with boldness, he said, If you are able and have received power against me, delay not to attack. But if you are unable, why trouble me in vain? For faith in our Lord is a seal and a wall of safety to us. So after many attempts, they gnashed their teeth upon him because they were mocking themselves rather than him. Isn't that amazing? It's like the most horrible Hollywood movie you could ever picture. Demons everywhere, and they all look like terrible, scary monsters and animals. And he goes, if y'all had any power, it would only take one of you. So there's a lot of you that all come here to make scary faces and intimidate me. And if you could touch me, you would have done it already. But you can't. So leave me alone. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
So you have no power over me. You've got to try and make me afraid because that's where all your power lies. That's why whenever we hear about demonic stories, it's always like, it was the creepiest thing. And then they made all those scary noises and scary voices. It's like, why well, I'm not afraid of you. And the minute you're not afraid and you have faith in Jesus, that's when the demons start to whimper and say things like, Lord, please don't send us into the abyss. Please don't. Can we go to the pigs? Is it okay if we go in the pigs? The Lord has already defeated the enemy. He's loud and he's annoying, but he has no authority over you anymore. The manager can't come and tell you to wash the dishes. I don't work for you. <laughs> Stop going to church. I don't listen to you. Stop praying for healing. God's not going to do it. I don't answer to you. Stop reading your Bible. It's not going to do any good. Well, who asked you anyway? When you stand up to the wicked one, you will find that he is a toothless lion. The battle is in the mind. If you can believe what God has said, it will be enough. What do we do with these people? Well, let's tell them they're not allowed to preach anymore. <laughs> Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Testimonies, y'all, it's so key. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The idea is, it wasn't like he was young and spry and he would have got over it eventually. So they call him in, they try to intimidate them again, warning them not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. Peter throws it back in their face. He says, you know what? I'm willing to disobey you to obey God. I'm willing to take that risk. That's the limit of our Romans 13 obedience, by the way. Romans 13 tells us to obey the rulers and authorities, but the minute they try to command you to sin, you respectfully, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say, look, I'm going to be the best citizen you've ever had, but if you expect me to fall into line with your worldview or your religion, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to stop preaching about Jesus. I'm not going to start to stop teaching the word. I'm not going to allow you to set the agenda of this church. And they were amazed because they were unlearned men. You, you didn't go to Bible college. You didn't go to Sanhedrin school. You're not rich. You're not famous. You're from Galilee. You're fishermen. And they remembered that what had made the difference was that they had been with Jesus. And that's what makes the difference for you and me, by the way. Some of the most amazing men of God I've ever met did not go to Bible college, did not go to school. I did. And some people try to talk like, why would you go to Bible college? All you need is Jesus. Why can't I have both? That's <laughs> what I always said. But the point is, that's not going to make the difference. What's going to make the difference is Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? This is like in Amos chapter 7, when Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, no prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I love that story because he shows up. He says, listen, O seer, get out of here. This is my turf. This is my territory. Go prophesy in Judah. He said, I know how you guys do it down there. He says, no. I had no intention of becoming a prophet. I was a farmer, but God said, go prophesy. So I'm about to prophesy to you. Listen up good. They recognized they had been with Jesus. That's what made the difference. 
Listen, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to the Lord. There's a story of, a, of an English evangelist and uh, kind of a wacky dude. Really, he was in a lot of ways, but I love this story. Because on one occasion, he awoke during the night, aware of a satanic presence. Looking across the room, he saw the devil himself standing there. And he said to Satan, oh, it's only you. And he rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> Don't you love that? Like, ah, get the, wh where's a cross? Somebody find a cross. You can't touch me. He's like, oh, it's just you. It's just you. You think you're hot stuff? I'm going back to bed. I, I got preaching to do tomorrow morning. I love that. As we close here, I realize it is much easier to talk about this than it is to do it and live it out. But in a way, it isn't. In a way, when we say, that's so hard, you're buying into what the enemy is trying to tell you. You're buying the, the bill of goods he's trying to sell you. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you think you're hearing from God and it makes you afraid and anxious and panicked, you are not hearing from the Lord. The Lord said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and fasting, let your supplications be made known to God. I don't know your circumstances, but what I do know is that fear is never from the Lord. He always desires us to have peace and joy. And this is different. It's a different category. When we're talking about healing, does the Lord sometimes have a plan for our sickness? Yeah, I think he does. But the Lord never desires you to live in terror of something else. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. Has the devil been intimidating you? Is your mind rushing and your heart racing every time you think about the Lord? That is the panicked thrashing of a defeated enemy. And just like the Lord was able to make these disciples stand in the day of adversity and put these men to shame who thought they had so much power, God can deliver you. And he can deliver you in a moment, by the way. It doesn't have to be a long stretch and a long battle. Can it be? Sure, but it doesn't have to be. We pray for physical healing. Isn't it easier for God to do a mental healing? I don't know, <laughs> but it seems like it would be, doesn't it? Draw near to God, resist the devil, and step out in faith, and God can save you from fear. And then you keep going. You embark on a lifetime of strengthening your defenses against the next time the enemy comes prowling around. Psalm 34, 17 through 18, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. As we've been saying for weeks now, it all comes back to the fact that Jesus is on the throne. He has all authority and he loves you so much. He wants to set you free, not just from your sin and not just from the physical maladies that you endure, but from mental and spiritual intimidation and fear. God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, and love and a sound mind. He's near to the brokenhearted and he loves us so much. And if you can believe that, everything in your life will begin to change.